I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr information in the form of energy streams in streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy Guests are Justine Mastin and Larissa Garski. You're both licensed marriage and family therapists, and you're the authors of this wonderful new book that takes a fun approach to psychotherapy. It's called Starship Therapies Using Therapeutic Fan Fiction to Rewrite Your Life. Justine and Larissa, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, thank you for having us. We like magic and mystery. <laughs> you do a podcast as well, which is titled Starship Therapies. Yep. First off, I just want to say that I love the title and the concept of your book. Oh, thank you. I've done this kind of thing spontaneously many times throughout my life, and I'm sure that many of us have. Mm -hmm. But you do this intentionally in your therapy practices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. So I guess we should begin by explaining exactly what fandom and fan fiction are, because as I was reading the book, and even now, 
I still have a hard time with the term fandom. I get fan fiction. That that's pretty simple, but fandom I I can't seem to you know, get the definition exactly. I don't know why I'm, I'm not getting it. So, uh, and that's okay. Sometimes parts of us just say no, thank you to <laughs> to definition. Um, when I think of fandom, the the way I've explained it to people before who are you know completely new to the concept is it's the kingdom of the fans. So it is it is the realm of the fans, and that means the people who love. It could be literally anything, you know. Sports have fandom; they they have a very strong fandom, you know. And you, when you do. think about sports fandom, what is what is that kingdom of the fans? What's their culture like? Well, they like to wear particular outfits for particular events, and they have attachment to certain players, and so that's that's sports fandom. And then, you know, movie fandom would look surprisingly similar. It's just culturally, <laughs> we we make them seem as though, you know, they're distinct and separate and different. But really, it's it's very much the same thing. If, if you, listener, have ever gone to a ball game and worn a jersey, then you, you kind of get what it's like to do a live action role play. Another way that I kind of like to explain it is um, because in my undergraduate career, I did a lot of like literary mm-hmm. criticism. I read a lot. I wouldn't say that I like wrote a lot. I would say I made some some valiant attempts, <laughs> um, much like a red paladin in Riverdale. Um, but I wasn't as successful as mm-hmm. Archie the Red Paladin. So I, I would put it like this. So literary criticism focuses a lot on the art mm-hmm. itself and sort of taking that apart. Fandom is the flip side of that. Fandom is focused on the readers, the viewers, the listeners, and their experience with whatever they love in art or games. And when I say games, I include sports mm-hmm. in that. Does that help at all, Tonio? I, I get it now. I don't know why my brain just wasn't getting it. So as you were saying, it really applies to pretty much every arena of life. Like, it certainly applies to politics, yeah, and actually yes. we did um we did a podcast about political fandom right around mm-hmm. uh presidential election time. Yeah, that that's quite a minefield. Yep. <laughs> that's that's the right word for it, <laughs> minefield. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of like well, I don't know. I don't know if I want to get into war things, but that's what sure. politics have become. It's become a war zone and a minefield to to enter the battlefield. So you can get it from mines underfoot and from every direction. It's, yeah, it's why I I prefer to stay out of politics as much as possible, even though I I get so enraged by it and caught up in it at times. So so anyway. Well, actually, it's funny because that, that does link up with, you know, the sort of fandom that we're talking about, you know, the, the kind of pop culture fandom, because, I mean, there are corners of especially the fandom internet that are Mm -hmm. landmines you know today when we're recording this is may the 4th which is star wars day and star wars fans are particularly divided around their feelings yes on the media how so oh goodness um there there's a whole 
We're going to do a summary, an <laughs> overview, like a bird's eye view. Imagine yourself as a hawk. Okay, okay. I'm going to do, do the bird's eye. <laughs> so, you know, there are folks who are staunch, you know, OG fans of episodes four, five, and six. Mm-hmm. And everything else is is not in their canon. And canon refers mm-hmm. to, like, what is the original text? Yes. The the canonical text. Everything else for them is, is right. fan fiction. We get so caught up in what is the canonical text. Like, in fandom, in all kinds of fandom, including, like, biblical mm-hmm. fandom, right? Like, what is the canonical mm-hmm. Bible? So, Star Wars fans yeah. do that, too. So, when you say episodes four, five, and six, you're referring to the the first three films that appeared within our world. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get what you mean because yeah, I've seen them all, and they are three distinct bodies of fiction. You could say they're they're three completely different stories. They're definitely interrelated, but they're very different. And I can I can see how people would would get caught up in in that kind of biblical canonical um, kind of uh, orthodoxy. Yes, that's a yeah. much better and so word. they'll mm-hmm. they'll say, well, that's not my Star Wars, right? So when you say May Fourth is a special day for Star Wars for some Star Wars fans, is that the mm-hmm. day when when the first movie came out, or what? Uh, so it's it's a pun. You got to listen for it. May the Fourth be with you. Oh, okay. Well, many years ago, I was living in a community. I had a, a housemate who had a bumper sticker that said, metaphors be with you. Oh, oh love that. <laughs> That's lovely. I think she had it specially made because I never saw it anywhere else. No, I've never heard of that until mm-hmm. right now. I love it. I might put that in my pocket and use it later. Lovely. Yeah, or, or have, have it made to become part of, part of your fandom and fan fiction. <laughs> Sure, merch <laughs> to promote the book. <laughs> so then let, let's get into, explain what fan fiction is. Uh, Larissa, you want to take that one? Oh, I was going to offer it to you there, friend, because fan fiction okay. is your well, I Well, ju- I just want to make sure that the folks at home know you're still here. I'm, I'm, I'm still here, <laughs> folks at home. Don't you worry. Spock is yeah, not going so anywhere. Yeah, so for folks who aren't familiar with us... On our podcast, we we embody these personae of the Star Mm -hmm. Trek characters, Kirk and Spock. And I, Justine, bring a lot of Kirk energy, and Larissa brings a lot of Spock energy. And we we carry Mm -hmm. that through in our book. So you often do hear me talking more because I'm the captain. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But when you need your APA citations done. That's right. I'm your I'm your Vulcan. I'm your Vulcan human for you. That's right. So fan fiction is is one of my favorite things in the world. And this is when we get to look at what is canonical and ask ourselves, how is this serving me? And if it's not mm-hmm. deciding in our own minds or on a piece of paper or on the internet to write an alternate version. And you know, for some folks are like, oh, that sounds weird. But the thing is, we've been doing this since the beginning of time. You know, like mm-hmm. when when we were storytellers back in our ancient days, 
we would just tell stories over and over and over again. And don't we think that the bison got bigger and bigger every time that story got told? I think we fanfic <laughs> the size of that bison that we, the hunters, brought home right. for the village. And also, mm-hmm. in more like mainstream ideas, how many versions of Sherlock have there been? You know, right. how many different ways have we told the story of the Odyssey? If we look at the mm-hmm. original story as being canon, we have all engaged with a whole lot of Sherlock Holmes fan fiction. And aren't we making up everything all the time anyway, even though most of us are completely unaware that we're doing it and some of the ways we've been conditioned and how that plays mm-hmm. into the way we make things up? Because it, it's, all, it's all a story. Everything in our lives is a story, and it's just a matter of how yeah. aware of it we are. And it, it reminds me of Doug Rushkoff. He wrote this book, Program or Be Programmed, and I just love that concept. It's like it sort of addresses that issue of you can be a victim of your life, or as you like to say, rewrite the stories of your life. And that's what fan fiction is, really, isn't it? Creating a better story than the one that you just realized isn't serving you, isn't living up to what we're really wanting in our lives. And we actually have that option. We have That's available to us through the magical power of creativity. And several years ago, I noticed that Sony came up with this new kind of tagline at the beginning of their movies. It said, make believe. And when I saw that, I was like, yes, yes, corporate America is finally speaking truth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yes, absolutely. Every minute of every day we are creating our reality. We're, We're writing the story that we live in. And most of us don't realize it. You know, we, we believe we have been placed in a canonical story that is already, you know, there are already plot points to this story that you need to hit. You need to be married by 22 and have kids by 25 and a home by Mm -hmm. 27. Wow. Really? Do those plot points spark joy for you? (laughs) And for lots of people, they don't. Well, they don't. And they're, they're as real as you let Mm -hmm. them be. And I think another piece to really think about here as we're talking about this is that while it absolutely is the case that the more we are aware of the stories we're creating, the more we can take the writer's mm-hmm. pen back from constructed stories and meanings that aren't working for us and mm-hmm. rewrite them or revise them, it's also the case that we are on a regular daily basis impacted by the stories that other mm-hmm. folks are writing and impacted by the systems that other large groups have created. And so though those systems absolutely were created by humans, and thus we can change them, which is incredibly empowering, they also still exist and can impact us. And they can impact us in neutral ways, positive ways or negative ways. And so I think that balance, which we definitely kind of go more into in chapter two of the book, or that sometimes that conflict between what we are as the individual are trying to rewrite versus what has already been written and in place by other systems and other groups of folks, you know, there can be some real tension there. There's possibility for change and growth. And also 
whenever there's a possibility for growth and change, there's also going to be some tension and often some pain along the way. Yeah, it's it's so challenging because most of those stories that we adopted, we adopted when we were children long before we even had any sense of choice or realizing that we were just like dry sponges who just took everything in without question. So that even mm-hmm. even once we realize that we're quote unquote in the driver's seat of our own lives and we can actually rewrite our own stories, as you said, Larissa, there's this tension that, that arises yeah. between the stories we're trying to recreate, to rewrite, and the old mm-hmm. stories that have been, you could say, imprinted upon us and are not easy to unravel or to overwrite. You know, mm-hmm. like, like in the computer world, for example, back to Doug Rushkoff, he said, you know, the realization he had was that we live in a, you know, most people assume that the world around us is just a right-only universe. The code has been written and you can't do anything about it. But he had this realization, hey, the universe is a rewrite universe. It's not just a right-only universe. And when you think of it in that way, um, and I know that many of your clients are nerds and marginalized people who don't feel like they fit into our society. And I think many of your clients probably totally get this. Yeah, it's it's funny because I, for all of the software engineers that I work with, I I am very much a product of my Gen X time, and I don't understand computers. Me neither. But I, I love the concept of write and rewrite, and that's so empowering. To me, that's all you need to know. Oh, it is. And actually, Tonya, as you were talking, I was like, oh, I'm thinking of a particular human I work with currently. And I'm like, I'm going to bring that phrase into our next session. I know that's going to be very impactful. Yeah, it's so, so powerful. And it's so obvious, too. But it's also so easy to completely miss. Right? Mm hmm. Yeah. You know, get on on the train and, and head in, in the direction that it's taking you and forget that you have any, not control so much as you have your own creative independence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you made this wonderful leap into bringing this work into your therapy practice. How did you discover that? How did you connect those dots? Because I didn't. I mean, many years ago, I had this realization that I could actually rewrite my own stories, because you know, I loved reading novels. And I had this realization all of a sudden that I could actually do this for myself. But I didn't really, at the time, I didn't really believe that I could do it. But I was intrigued by it. And I felt kind of secretly empowered by it. And even though I never actually did it, I just felt like I had given myself a sort of like, it was, you know, it's sort of like when you, you see an exit, off in the corner, you realize, ooh, I have a way out. I don't necessarily yeah. want to go or need to go, but I love mm-hmm. that I know where the exit is, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have the agency. You could if you needed to or wanted to. Yeah. yeah. Right. You, yeah. you sort of discovered one of the secrets of the universe. Oh, it's an Easter mm-hmm. egg. <laughs> it is. Absolutely. Or it has a real, like, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe feel. Like, you know, you can go through the wardrobe mm-hmm. if you need to. Right. And 
I have no experience with video games, but I think in video games, there's a lot of those kind of motifs. Yes, that's very true. Yeah, the secret passage. And then you find your way in and there's and there's all this gold you can collect. If you find your way into the secret room. There are. There's, sometimes there's like hidden people in there you can talk to. <laughs> sometimes you don't want to talk to them because they're on a very important mission. Yes, this is a specific video game I'm referencing. It's Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. <laughs> it's a great game. But there's this like hidden passage in this whole story. And it, as a gamer, I was like, I don't want to do this. I need to see Mina. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there are all these magical options available. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but back to your original question. <laughs> yes, back to your original question. <laughs> and the same is true in life. It's just that we have to we have to recognize them. And it seems to me that the process of recognizing these things is the very same thing as learning to empower ourselves in relationship to the world. And isn't that what therapy is all about? Yes. Yes. That's really beautifully and said. We we stand um, on the shoulders of giants. Don't we, we do. all? <laughs> we do. Don't we all? And some of the shoulders in particular that I'm thinking of right mm -hmm. now, and I think Justine is too, are the shoulders of Michael White and David Epstein. Mm -hmm. You did. Did I get his Good name job. right? Yes. I always want to change his name, but today, May the 4th was with me. Um, <laughs> so, so these two humans, and of course, a bunch of others, because we do things together mm -hmm. in community, even if we don't always name our mm -hmm. community as we're co-creating things, they came up with this idea of narrative therapy. And narrative therapy, it's based on everything you just said, Tonio. So it's this idea of how can we bring the lens of revision and rewriting and reauthoring into the therapeutic space? How can we bring that kind of creativity? In? And so many of the, well, not many, but some of the concepts that we talk about, especially in the early part of the book, come directly from White and Epstein. And of course, we cite them because I'm we're good researchers. Research yeah. is all about. <laughs> but then I don't know what their background was in fandom, but they didn't bring mm -hmm. fandom in. And so for Justine and I, at a very early on in our careers, we felt like there were some missing pieces or parts to narrative mm -hmm. therapy. And I'm going to pass that over to you, Justine, because you tell this part of the story really beautifully. Well, what we really felt was missing was play, you know, mm -hmm. and this is really vital to the work that we do, that we see this engagement with story, you know, some might see it as, you know, frivolous or, you know, oh, that's that's juvenile. But the thing is, we need play. Adults need play. Yeah. And there's this social construct, at least in Western culture, that only children play. And when you get to, I don't know, you know, the tween age years, then we need to start, you know, putting away childish things and start stepping into the role of the grown up world. And that's just not right. In fact, if if more people played, we would have fewer clients. And I will attribute this quote to Mr. Rogers, but I may not do it exactly the way he said it. But he said, play is the work of children. And I say, play is the meaning making of adults. So we took what White and Epstein wrote down and said, let's fanfic it. <laughs> <laughs> and make it our own. And let's add in a lot of this questioning of social constructs. And let's bring in a big dose of play. 
I love that. Yeah, as you say, adults have lost, I guess in a, in a way they've lost permission to play. It's like they've had it beaten out of them. Our education system just kind of beats it out of children. You know, it seems like growing up in our society is having play and fun and daydreaming and all the elements of of fan fiction, you know, rewriting our world, ourselves, and, and the world around us out of us so that we fit into the old world that the previous adults created and have so deeply invested themselves in. And in order to protect that investment that, of course, they made totally unconsciously to validate it and to force their children, all of us, to adopt and they try to make us do it without questioning. Just do what I say, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Don't yeah. you want to live in my story? I made this story for you. And mm-hmm. wow, you did make that story for me. But you know what? You didn't know what I was going to be like. And you didn't know what this world was going to be like. <laughs> and yeah, I don't like it. I don't yeah. like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And look, look how up your life is i don't i don't want that it doesn't work for you and it doesn't work for me yeah Mm -hmm. you're right but of course the other component of this that makes it so challenging to pass back a story from our parents our ancestors that doesn't fit for us is that not all the time but at least some of the time we do have some real emotional connections to some of these Mm -hmm. folks because they're our core caregivers they're the ones who raised us and it can feel like, well, if I'm passing back this story, am I passing back you, this human, mm-hmm. too? Betrayal, kind of? Right, mm-hmm. kind of. And how do we separate out the story from the person? And it's even more complicated when these folks who were our caregivers can't themselves separate who they are from the story that they've told and that they want us to be a part of. Because then it does feel like, well, if you're passing back the story, then you are rejecting me and the story, even though that's not often what adult children are trying Mm -hmm. to do. And that's what psychotherapy was born out of, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Isn't that like the the crux of the genesis of psychotherapy is is that very dynamic, you know, being able to separate the origins of our delusion and separate yeah. it from the real meaningful parts of our lives, like like the people that we were connected to and that we love from the stories that we don't love. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And this is what sets marriage and family therapy apart from other modalities. And we get asked this a lot, like, well, what makes marriage and family therapists different than social workers or psychologists or licensed professional clinical counselors? Like, I don't know what any of that means. Or Freudians, or oh yeah, you got your right. psychoanalysts. Or Jungians. Mm-hmm. Don't leave them out. They'd be very <laughs> no, upset. they would just assume this had something to do with my unconscious. That's true. It's all about our mothers or our fathers <laughs> or both. <laughs> but the thing that sets marriage and family therapists apart is our use of systems and relationships. So our work is systemic yes. and relational. We don't see a person as being in a vacuum where. You know, they are just experiencing neuroses. 
who knows why just alone in this vacuum, right? We're like, well, (laughs) they have anxiety. Let's see what's happening in their family. What's happening in their community? What's happening in our society? What's happening on our planet? And then what is that person's relationship to all these different aspects? Mm -hmm. And that for me, there's no other way to see the world. We don't exist in vacuums. Right. Yeah, that reminds me, a while back, I was talking with a therapist, and she was talking about how in her work with children, that she often has to do therapy with their parents in order to make therapy effective with the child, and that if deep, meaningful work wasn't accomplished with the parent, then the child was kind of screwed because they weren't at a place where they were really ready to take on the power of directing their own lives against such a powerful force as their parent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Larissa, that makes me think of what you talk about sometimes with children. Children aren't necessarily ready for independent play. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Right, that I I sometimes will talk about because when I got my start, I worked a lot with young kids and families. And so what you're saying, Tony, is absolutely the case when working with kids Mm -hmm. and parents. You have to include the parent. Otherwise, a child can make all kinds of change within the therapeutic space. But if parents aren't involved, there's not going to be any transference, in part because one of our social constructs is that children don't get choices a lot of the time. Their parents get choices. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the component, which I think Justine is alluding to, that especially for really young kids, so like ages from like zero to six, they're not able to make choices, right? Their brains are still developing. They need adults around them to help them, to help them build their minds and understand the world and the both the constructs that we currently have in our society, but also like some of the things that are actually like laws and immutable facts Mm -hmm. like gravity, right? And so depending on where the child is at, they're going to need those core caregivers around them to help them learn, to teach them about healthy boundaries and what's going to be safe for their bodies and what's not, because they're not able to see the world fully. And so, of course, then parents do need to be brought in. And then what's challenging, of course, is then parents have to change. Nobody likes that. (laughs) Yeah. It's rare. It's rare. I can think of a couple of parents that I've worked with who are like, yes, change. <laughs> but even there, it's like complicated. <laughs> right. Even my kids are worth me giving up some of my certainties or whatever. You know, my canonical, you know, absolutes. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. This is. Yes. The origin story I wrote in my mind about my exactly. child. And so, so often my role was coming in and saying, okay. How can we fanfic this based on what we're learning about your child? Because if you stay in this rigid story, you're going to get stuck. And you're missing some of these moments, right? You're missing some of these moments with your child that I think you'd really enjoy because you're so narrowly focused on this old origin story that you wrote. Oftentimes you wrote it before you even knew them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You'll end up totally missing who your child really is. And the horrible consequence is that it may cause your child to miss out on who they are as well, which is so, so incredibly sad. It is. It is. And or for it to take the child 
a much longer and more challenging and often painful time to find themselves because kids are masters at hiding parts of themselves away when they feel like the adults around them aren't going to be open to those parts of who they are. But then it's like they forget where they kept these parts. They hid them so well that they hid them from themselves. Right. And when they start learning to make choices for themselves and their parents position themselves diametrically opposite those choices that their children make, wow, what a powerful and uh, horrible dynamic that is. Yeah. I mean, we didn't plan it this way, but it's very Star Wars, right? Sure. Yeah. That's <laughs> transgenerational narratives. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Luke and Darth Vader battling over like whose fanfic story is going to win out. <laughs> yeah. It's really laid out in black and white in that story. Yes, it is. Which is why I, I, I tend to prefer other more complex and nuanced stories. And um, I love the way you talked about some of them. Like, for example, Westworld was one of my favorite shows. And I just love that you adopted this term, which you call Westworld constructs. Yeah. And it's such a deep show. It's very dark at times, but it's very deep and very profound. I would love for you to talk about how Westworld and Westworld constructs fit into all of this for you and the way you brought it to life in such a such a accessible way. Oh, thank you. That's really, that's the dream. That's what we were, that was the goal. So for folks at home, if you're not familiar with Westworld, I'm going to spoiler it for you a little bit. Mm -hmm. So if you're like, I don't want to be spoiled, you just mute for the next 20 seconds. <laughs> Although, to be fair, it's been on for a while. The premise of the show is that we are in a more advanced future where technology has advanced to the point that we can have these humanoid robots that welcome guests into a kind of quote-unquote amusement park where anything goes. And there's yeah. quite a lot of sex and violence in that park. Right. And for gamers, I mean, imagine like a video game like any of the Red Dead Redemptions, for example. The Westworld Park is really a video game come to mm -hmm. life. So it's also, if you're a Star Trekian, it's like you can walk onto the holodeck and there everything is. But it's also more problematic than I think sometimes the holodeck is portrayed in the Star Trek universe because the robots in mm -hmm. the Westworld Park are all sentient. They have right. consciousness. Which, to be fair, the creators didn't mm -hmm. realize initially that their creations were going right. to become sentient. And then this creates a lot of ethical questions about what does it mean to... It's all, it, it gets very existential. Lots of existential dread. <laughs> right? But the reason it spoke to us specifically around the concept of social constructionism is this world was constructed. No question about yeah, it. Literally. From the smallest mosquito to the biggest bison. Bison came up twice today. Who would have thought? It's all created. And we do the same thing here in our world. Now, obviously, we don't create our bison. Although... We do some genetic splicing now, so... We do. Do we make our bison? Mm. But this is a way for us to talk about looking around the world we live in and asking ourselves, yeah. this story, is this real? 
is this an immutable fact? Right. Like gravity? Mm-hmm. Or is this right. something I can question and change? Like gender yeah. norms? Racial constructs. Culture. In the Westworld part, they decide what the culture is going to look like. They decide who's going right. to be what race and what that means. And we do mm-hmm. the same thing. We do. <laughs> and another way that I often like to describe the Westworld construct is that it's like a spyglass. So once you have the Westworld construct, you can kind of put it up to your either literal or metaphorical mm-hmm. eyes, and you can start to see all of the things that we've created in our world and our society, including society. Mm-hmm. And that can be such, I mean, it can be an overwhelming experience at first for folks, but then over time, especially if they have the guides and the supports that they need, the Gandalfs, mm-hmm. if you will, then they can really start to feel empowered around making choices. I love that you brought Gandalf in, not so much as Gandalf, but what he represents. He's this powerful magician. And the quality of a magician is that they can step outside of the laws of the world as we know it. Yes. And in doing that, they see the world in a different way and they have a very different relationship with the world. They can do things that are normally considered to be impossible. And when I was growing up as a child, I had this deep sense that literally anything is possible and that the laws of the world as we knew it, that the adults were insisting upon and scientists and, you know, all those adults, (laughs) that all that was crap, you know, that that was just made up. And I didn't like that story and I didn't believe it. I didn't buy it. And I came across all kinds of stories that were outside of those limitations, and I loved them. And many of them were based on traditions that were outside of our Western culture that are, you know, well-established and and accepted outside of our culture. Mm -hmm. And there's another example of this tension between different stories. Well... It also sounds like, Tonio, that you were a natural wizard. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Even though I was, you know, heavily traumatized and damaged by having a bipolar mother who would flip out on me on a regular basis, and I was so traumatized that it was really almost impossible to have any experience of self-empowerment in my life. And yet those seeds... The seeds of possibility were there. They weren't destroyed. And I survived. Yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. th- thank you so much for telling us about that, because you were displaying your own resilience. And you didn't even mm-hmm. realize you were doing it at the time. But research tells us that it only takes one adult in a child's life to encourage their resilience. And we believe that that Mm -hmm. adult can be a fictional character. Yeah. That was such a beautifully encouraging thing that you pointed out. I was very fortunate that I have a father who was very supportive and encouraging. And it was actually in the library of his books that I discovered some of these magical possibilities. So I knew, even though I didn't talk to him about any of this stuff, I just, I knew that, ooh, these are his books. So he must... Yeah. Even though I didn't 
consciously think those thoughts. Sure. So, yeah, talk more about these fandom characters and figures and how they can help us, in a sense, empower us and reparent us and show us another way, another story that our own parents were unable to and that our even our society is unable to and how we can use some aspects of pop culture to be empowering and healing for us, even if they weren't necessarily created or intended that way. Oh, that's so beautifully said, Tonio. And I really appreciate the way that you concluded just now with naming that regardless of how something in art is intended, we can take it and we can do something really magical with it. And really, when I think about like, what is magic or what is magic for me, it is that transfer, it is that ability to take something from art that is very powerful because of how it's presented to us, and then to take it and to make it a part of our lives, you know, and to call on that archetypal power that maybe is in that piece of art that we're holding, but then to transfer it into ourselves or our stories or, or how we understand ourselves in the world. I think that's really the power of what we're talking about with therapeutic fan fiction. And it brings us back to play and the power of play. And there's a quote from your book, humans are special beings because we are emotionally sensitive beings who have access to both the collective unconscious that can contain all knowledge and the ability via personal consciousness and the unconscious to create new knowledge and new actions. And you ask, how do we create this newness? Play. (laughs) (laughs) And even though these profound things that you're talking about, you know, we wouldn't at least in our culture, we wouldn't think of play as being the way to access all of that. But play is the power that magicians use. They have this instinctive, intuitive, or just learned ability to play outside. And here's the term that I love, play outside the narrow little kitty litter box that we've been brought up in. (laughs) That's great. That's so great, because who wants to stay in a box of litter? Not even cats. No one. Not even cats. (laughs) Exactly. Especially full of poop and piss. (laughs) (laughs) And isn't this world just full of too much poop and stinky piss? And don't we want to just rewrite all of that? Clean out some of those old stories that don't work, that we don't like? and expand the boundaries, maybe get rid of them altogether. Although that's kind of hard, the way we've been brought up. But yeah, to have to create enough space to play in a much more free and empowering way. Yeah. And what's interesting is, I think this, is this a swear friendly show? Well, I get to bleep things and I just love the sound of bleep. So you heard that I've already used a few words. Okay, great, great. <laughs> great. So we talk about shittily wrapped gifts in our book. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> it just it just tips trips off the tongue, right? And I believe that one of the shittily wrapped gifts of this pandemic 
has been shifts in the narrative around play. Because suddenly we are in our homes. There is, quote unquote, nothing else to be doing. Lots of people are out of work or working from home. And suddenly there's less stigma around saying, I binge watched this show or I played this video game for six hours the way that there was a year and a half ago. And so one of the shitly wrapped gifts here is that folks had to question their social construct because society shifted. Yeah. And people started having more play well, and talking about it more. So it's, it's a wonderful little step forward that I hope we keep. Well, isn't the experience of pain essential when it comes to recognizing how a story doesn't work for us and awakening the desire to create a new story. Mm -hmm. And another way to put that is from one of our favorite television shows, The Magicians, which is the quote, magic comes from pain. Mm -hmm. And I don't take that quote to mean that we need to have gratitude for the pain, that we need to be like, oh, thank goodness for this pain because now I have this magic. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. Pain is pain. Pain is awful. And from that awful, painful wrapping paper, mm -hmm. there is sometimes real magic. Oh, that is so real. Yes. And what that's bringing up for me is something more in fandom than in life, although it is also in life. <laughs> um, <laughs> and what I'm talking about is so many are still fearful of queer representation and queer couples. Yes. And mm -hmm. so much fanfic is done to make characters gay, queer, bi, pan, lesbians, whatever, because we're not seeing it. And there is a pain. And I experience that pain when I watch one of my favorite shows, Supernatural, because two of the male leads are absolutely a long-term married couple. <laughs> but it is never spoken. And it's maddening. And it drives people to write fan fiction. And like, yes, this also exists out in the world where, you know, where is my representation for what, mm. you know, I, I identify as queer. So I see that it's very loud for me. But whatever your identity is, when you look out, you see it. And yeah, it's painful. And how do I change that narrative? How do I systemically change that narrative, too? Right. And one of the things that we talk about in the book is offering the perspective that fan fiction stories are like they're valid and what i mean by that is that they have just as much a right to be as whatever is the canonical narrative this idea that one is more true which i'm saying in air quotes than the other i don't think that serves mm -hmm. folks i think that that is a westworld construct that we can say no thank you to at the very least it's one that i'm going to say no thank you to and the proud tradition of Ariana Grande. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and in order for any of us to experience real freedom, don't we have to allow that for everyone to play fair, in a sense? I think I'm picking up what you're putting down. And in fandom language, I would say like yucking someone else's yum. So if I mm -hmm. ship, and that's short for relationship, Dean and Castiel on Supernatural. That means I ought not be shameful of someone who ships Sam and Dean on that same show. 
So are they a gay couple? Is that what it is? No. Because I'm I'm not familiar. I don't know that show. It's very sad. Like, they walk and talk and move as if they are a gay couple. Dean and Castiel. But it's never explicitly stated in the show itself. In one of the final Um, few episodes, Castiel expresses mm -hmm. his affection. I see. So it's the underlying reality. Yeah. But it's never explicitly stated or acted upon Mm -hmm. in show, which is very painful to fans of the show. Especially when they're 15 seasons. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. And they've written like, there's beautiful, beautiful fan fiction stories about these characters. And they're wonderful and amazing. And they get to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. And this idea that somehow the show's version is more right. I just I think that's silly. And I, I think it, it cheapens our ability as humans to be these incredible, intuitive, creative storytellers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you were talking about that, right at the beginning, of the, I, I was thinking back to Westworld and Maeve and Dolores, because I'm sure there were a lot of men who were just extremely uncomfortable and threatened on an unconscious level by the power of these women who are stepping up and saying no to these old stories. Not only no, but we're coming after you. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We even named this in the book, like Dolores striding Mm -hmm. through the planes on her horse just like headed yeah. to fuck the patriarchy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure it was intimidating. Yeah. And Maeve was like you could see that she was like this pressure cooker pot boiling over. You could feel the tension in her and just wondering when is it coming out? Because right. Dolores was out there. She was just totally out there with it. But Maeve, you could see that Maeve probably had even more intensity and more power than Dolores, Mm -hmm. maybe by a long shot. And I was just wondering, you know, for a long time, when is she coming out? Because when she comes out, she's going to be the baddest ass of all the badasses. Mm -hmm. And she was. And she was such a wonderful depiction of the warrior mother goddess. Yes, exactly. From ancient myth. Like, that's exactly what it was. And it's the return and resurgence of the warrior mother goddess, which, frankly, we have sublimated and submerged within our cultural consciousness for hundreds of years at this point. And so it's so exciting to see that archetype is coming back and it's resonating for folks and there's such power there. In part because like you're naming Tonio, it's been under lock and key, just like pressurizing for decades and decades and decades. And even, you know, centuries and millennia. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the feminine in me is just totally rooting for her. It's like, look out, patriarchy, we're coming to get you. Well, I love the way you put that, because one of the things that I think is in terms of like my fan fiction around archetypes, which, of course, when they were created by Jung, he was a man. That says a lot right there. He was a man of Mm -hmm. his time. And so when he was thinking about the archetypes, he put them in very like gendered sort of compartments. And the way that I really look at them, like the goddess and the gods and even like the anima and the animus too, which is just wildly a a very problematic archetype not to go too far down Mm -hmm. the Jungian road but my point here is that we can talk about the masculine and the feminine as roles or personas that we can channel Mm -hmm. it's not so much that we have to get rid of them as that what we really need to do is widen our construct and say that like 
anybody can take on and resonate with these particular archetypes or characteristics. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be rigidly applied to certain folks over others. If this resonates with you, take it, use it, beautiful. Mm -hmm. And we have to do that because if we don't do that, we're actually blocking an essential part of ourselves, no matter what our gender is, or even if we don't officially have a gender. It's like, right. these, are a- these are essential aspects of ourselves. And if we are adopting or holding on to a story that excludes that, we are shutting ourselves down. We are disempowering ourselves at a core level that will essentially undermine us. Mm-hmm. And yeah. others. And yes. others, of course, because everything that we think and believe affects everything we say and do, which yes. ripples out and affects everybody around us continually. Yeah. We contain multitudes. Mm-hmm. Which we couldn't put in the book. <laughs> no, we couldn't. Walt Whitman's estate charges way more than we could pay with our fabulous indie publishing company. <laughs> Who was like, do you want to pay Walt Whitman's estate? And we said, no, thank you. We said, no, thank you. But we can quote him here. We do. We contain multitudes. And we limit ourselves and we hurt ourselves and we hurt others when we try to shut Mm -hmm. off parts of our own internal multiverse. So in order to experience true freedom in ourselves, we have to allow others the same freedom, even if it's dangerous, even if it's potentially threatening to us. I had a conversation with somebody, and actually the show aired last week. We were talking about freedom of speech and the implications of allowing everyone to speak freely, pursue their own thoughts and ideas in the world as freely as we would want ourselves to be able to do that, and that there are risks and dangers involved, and it takes courage to give everyone that kind of freedom. And if we don't have the courage to give that to everybody, we end up denying ourselves eventually. Well, what comes up for me when I hear that is I think we can all be free to a point. I think there is a point at which there is too much danger. What I mean by that is like danger of harm. You know, like conspiracy theories can be physically and emotionally harmful. We could go way down this road. This is... (laughs) My guests are Justine Mastin and Larissa Garski, the authors of this wonderful new book, Starship Therapies using therapeutic fan fiction to rewrite your life. What I want to Mm -hmm. offer is that conspiracy theories are just fan Mm -hmm. fiction. And something that the Westworld construct also offers is an understanding of what fan fiction is and what it Mm -hmm. isn't. And fan fiction tells us the truth about our feelings. Mm -hmm. And it tells us a lot about our perceptions Mm -hmm how our feelings are impacting what we see and what we don't see. And it's fiction. It's right there in the title. Mm. It's not telling us about the facts of the world around Mm. us. And my perspective on conspiracy theories is that, again, they are a type of fan Mm. fiction, and they are really speaking to emotional truths that people feel. But the trouble is when we don't see where that emotional truth ends... And the facts of what's happening in the world around us are beginning. Oh, that Does was that so sense? beautiful. I'm so glad you picked up that fallen gauntlet. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we're a team. We, make we a do great it together. Team. I say that to clients all the time, that we're a therapy team. We can do great things, but we have to do it together. Yes. 
And I love that part in the book. That relates to creating fellowships and also families of choice. And I think you mentioned that in the context of Frodo from The Lord of the Rings and how this little hobbit galvanizes this beautiful and incredibly powerful fellowship to save the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you talk about and translate that into our world and for the rest of us little people? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, Galadriel from that same story said, even the smallest person can change the course of the future. And we believe that's true because of all these interconnected systems and the way yeah. that we show up in the world impacts those around us. And, you know, it's like throwing a rock in a pond. You get ripples and ripples and ripples and ripples. It's also like to use a very old school marriage and family metaphor. So if we have MF- any MFTs listening, you probably know where I'm going with this. It's like this idea of a mobile. Oh, you went to the mobile. Right, right. We're going back to the stacks, baby. Okay, so little kids, often we put the mobile above their crib. I had a circus mobile. I loved it to death. I'd lay there and look at all little circus animals. And one of the tenets of marriage and family therapy to talk about system, the relationship between the individual within a system is that if you, if I were to touch, which I did as a kid, even though I was one of my family rules was don't touch the mobile, I did it anyway. <laughs> um, that's why the kangaroo fell apart, but that's another story. <laughs> so every time I would touch the kangaroo, I'd hit it with my little baby fist, the mobile would move. So the movement of the kangaroo impacted all of the other characters in my circus mobile or all the other little stuffed mm-hmm. animals. And so... Frodo and what he chose to do impacted his entire community because we are connected to everybody else on the planet. There are these invisible ties. We don't know how to like hold them and grasp them and measure them, frankly, but they're there and they're real. So every time we move, every time we make a shift, we're impacting others. We're impacting everybody else. We don't always know what's going to happen. We can't like predict it yet. So we can't like make anybody do something we want them to do, but we are going to have an impact on them. And so when you make a choice to change, when you make a choice to be like honest and true to who you are, all the different parts of you, and you bring that out into the world, well, then you're verbalizing to normalize, which is a phrase from Justine, right? So you are modeling for others how they too might be their fullest expression of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's no way for us to know the repercussions of our actions and, you know, who we are authentically in the world. But that's not our job. Our job is to just be who we are, right? And trust in the process. Mm -hmm. I like that. That's beautiful. And we are operating from the belief that the people want to find that which is their truest, most authentic self. And sometimes that means getting some help. And I don't necessarily mean from a therapist, although therapists are wonderful. Some of them are, yes. Some of I mean, I I tell this to people all the time. Our business is just like any business. Some of us are amazing and some of us are, "Eh, it's fine. And some are not great. Um, Some need help finding their authentic (laughs) self before they can start helping others find their authentic self. As we're creating fellowship in the real world, It can be friends, it can be family, it can be Mm -hmm. fictional characters. 
You know, I call upon fictional characters all the time for, you know, what would Gandalf tell me? And, you know, we talked about how wizards are playful, you know, invoking Gandalf instantly makes whatever I'm thinking about, like, it's serious. There's also probably some funniness we could find here. Some 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 whimsy, whimsy, shall we say. Inject here. And we invite folks to really gather those fandom attachments to help them so they can call upon them in those times when they need a little support. Right. And if you are someone for whom stories resonate, that will make sense to you. Like, oh, yeah, totally. I've absolutely thought to myself, what would Buffy the Vampire Slayer do if her boss was being a jerk? And here's the thing, our emotions have a really hard time noticing the difference between what we imagine and the external reality, Mm -hmm. right? And if we're aware of that, we can use that power. Because the more we imagine Buffy and what Buffy would say to our boss, the more our feelings start to shift away from terror Mm -hmm. or worry or defeat. And they start to respond to this idea of Buffy. Mm -hmm. And suddenly... We're starting to shift our own internal perspective. That's such an important insight. And I think it's something that's so easy to dismiss as not being real. Right. You see those bumper stickers that say, you know, WWBD, like what would Buffy do? Like, we're just, (laughs) we're just being silly, right? And like, sure, there's a silliness to it. Mm -hmm. There's a playfulness to it. And just because something is playful doesn't mean it isn't important. Right. The other thing I want to just remind us too about play, which I think is built into play, but helpful to highlight that play involves consent mm-hmm. too. So I love this <laughs> idea about trusting the dance. And I mean, very fittingly, dance is a metaphor I use a lot when I'm trying to talk about these sort of invisible relational mm-hmm. bonds. But just as with dancing as with any play, if you're going to invite someone to dance with you, you invite mm-hmm. them. Right. (laughs) And if they say no, thank you, we need to respect Mm -hmm. that. And then we can either head out to that dance floor and break dance solo, or we ask somebody else if they want to dance. We ask somebody else if they want to play. And that's the problem with patriarchy is patriarchy imposes Mm -hmm. their dance upon everybody. Very well And it's a square dance and none of us like it. Except for the square dancers. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what Westworld exemplifies in spades. Yes. And also all these issues around racism and slavery and the continued resistance even to accord women equality in our society. Even to this day, there's tremendous opposition to that, which is mind boggling. It is. And I'm going to get a little political here. Well, I mean, we've been political, but I'm going to get even more directly political, which just letting everyone know that. So if that's too much, go ahead and mute me. This is your opportunity for consent. It is your opportunity for consent. I want to honor and acknowledge that. Um, One of the core problems with capitalism, from my perspective, is that it inherently limits the dance floor. Mm. There's not enough room for everybody on the dance floor. And that's true in capitalism. There's not enough room. And so then you have all these groups who are like, wait a minute, if there's not enough room on the dance floor, I got to make sure I got a space. Mm -hmm. And so I do think part of what we got to do here is we need to rewrite this system Mm -hmm. 
I'm not even saying throwing out all parts of capitalism. I mean, part of me is saying that. <laughs> but another part of me is like, you know, keep, we don't necessarily need to like burn everything keep the down. publishing houses. Right? <laughs> but we need to take it apart and then decide what to keep, what to mm-hmm. pass back, and how to change it so that there's literally enough room on the dance floor. We need a bigger mm-hmm. dance floor. Yeah. I would really like to hear you flesh out where that comes from for you, because I think everybody has their own kind of feeling or or story around that? Well, I would say that for me, it comes from Star Trek, specifically Star Trek The Next Generation. So I'm of an age where I literally grew up watching the show and I was so young. So I started watching and I was like, I don't know, probably like three or four. So I didn't, my ability to understand what was fiction, what was nonfiction was at times totally non-existent because again, brain development. So like, for example, I was like, it's so amazing that Jordi LaForge, who's played by LeVar Burton, it's so amazing that during the day he can see on Reading Rainbow, he doesn't have his visor. But at nighttime, when I watch him on Star Trek The Next Generation, it's like he needs he needs his visor back on. And I had to find a way to like, make that make sense in my child mind. But you know, Star Trek The Next Generation is explicitly a post-capitalist socialist utopia. Some viewers of the show, I think still to this day, they like, rewrite that out. So their version of Star Trek doesn't involve that. But explicitly in the show, it's a post-capitalist socialist utopia. Mm-hmm. So as a kid, I was like, this is amazing. This is how it's going to be. When I grow up, I'm going to go to Starfleet. Oh, oh. And this is how the wor- right? And I was like, this is how the world is going to work. And I'm going to have a tricorder. And I'm going to be a ship's counselor. And it's going to be amazing. Oh, I'm sad for past you, who had to grieve I that mean- loss. <laughs> I did, but then also I think the way that I fanficked it for myself is I was like, okay, well, I'm going to help create that world. Oh. Mm. I love that. I am 100% with you there. There's one iconic episode of The Next Generation where they explicitly go into that when they find this pod with these people from the late 20th century. Yeah. And one of them is this, you know, greedy capitalist who had all these investments in his first response when he finds out that he's he's in the 24th century he said my investments must be worth a fortune and then they explained to him we don't have money in our society anymore people get to do whatever they most want to do there's no economic restrictions you don't have to buy your way into the game anymore yes it's it's a beautiful, beautiful utopic vision of the world yeah. post-capitalist. I'm so glad you brought that up because when I saw that episode, I was like, yes. <laughs> yes. Because I, I'm, I feel the same way completely. The story of capitalism is so disempowering. Right? And if you'll allow me, I'm going to quote, because it's from, it's from the book, but it's actually from Star Trek. It's Q. So like one of the things that Q says in the final, final episode of the series ever is that is the exploration that awaits you, not mapping stars and studying nebula, but charting the unknown possibilities of existence. And ultimately, I mean, I hope people take all kinds of things from the book, but I I hope that some folks take that, that this book is an inspiration or it's meant to be an inspiration to really like start to really think about the unknown ways that you could exist and be in the world 
and the different systems we could have. It doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to look like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is your call to adventure. Will you answer? Yeah. Yeah. Will you answer? Gosh, I hope you do, because there's all kinds of guides and friends and chosen family along the way here that are waiting for you. And this is a universe of infinite possibility. All you have to do is create enough space in your own life to embody it, harness it, play with it. Play. (laughs) (laughs) What a wonderful way to approach therapy. Play. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we think so. And our our clients think so, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think most people do not equate therapy with having fun and playing. I'm so <laughs> sorry that those people have that experience. <laughs> because it, it, can, it can involve play. It should involve mm-hmm. play. Play and, and pain and tears and all right. of that. It's a, most of my sessions involve all of those right? things. It's a both and, not an either or. It makes me want to go back into therapy. Yeah. <laughs> you just you just have to find a therapist who can speak this language or invite them yeah. to read our book and see if it resonates with them. It can be a litmus test. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I've I've interviewed a lot of therapists and I often come away thinking, "Ooh, I would love to be I'd love to have you as my therapist." <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Just for the fun of it. Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, not even thinking in terms of what I could gain from it therapeutically, although everything we can gain is ultimately therapeutic. Yeah. I think I think we tend to have, many of us tend to have a very narrow notion of what is therapeutic, like this mm-hmm. medical model. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas what you guys are doing is really opening up the territory in a very fun creative and playful way of possibility, which, which I love. I mean, I'm a, I'm a possibility, you know, magician kind of person. Yes, you are. Oh, possibility magic. <laughs> yeah, that's the universe I want to live in. And um, I wish that upon everybody. And I'm always really sad when I encounter people who don't allow themselves that. Yeah. And especially when I see parents who are like, kind of beating it out of their children. Because I think children just need to be given virtually infinite space to discover that possibility. Because I think it's innate in them to explore that. And as they, you know, as we explore things in a free and open, playful way, that just happens naturally. And um, I just hope our society not only goes post-capitalist, but goes post- um, canonical let's say oh i love that verbiage we need a post canonical society yeah i think i invented that but probably not probably somebody else has created that (laughs) i don't know say trademark real quick (laughs) (laughs) but this is a post capitalist thing so the hell with trademarks right you can just stand right next to all the folks, shoulder to shoulder, who said it. You said it with them. We say it together. Right. We say it together. We do it all together. You know what you just did? You just added a, a foot to the dance floor. Ooh. Yay. <laughs> it's the modern day hustle. 
is that the dance where everybody does it together? Uh huh. We all shuffle together. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of dating myself. No, it's it's okay. All dances are welcome. I'm I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I like Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> my mind went to blue suede shoes, which is even older. So you know, there we go. <laughs> Post-canonical worlds. <laughs> Everything is available to us, right? All genres available. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a question for, for both of you. When you get knocked off balance or get triggered in a way that just breathing doesn't quite cut it, what are your favorite approaches? What's your favorite thing to do when you find yourself in that kind of a situation? Or is it that once you realize that you're in that situation that you're pretty much made the biggest step out? That is a big step. And we still need to chill out our central nervous system. Mm -hmm. Because just recognizing it, you know, these mammalian bodies, even though our prefrontal cortex has grown immensely, the base of our brain, the reptile brain is still like, tigers! (laughs) predators danger and so we need to take a sec to chill out the central nervous system and the way that i do that i use two different techniques that folks at home you are welcome to you can take these and use them i use a five senses mindfulness practice and a practice that i call embody mint (laughs) you'll see why that's funny in a second so five senses different people do it different ways the way i do it is you know Sitting upright in my chair, looking around my room, one thing I can see, one thing I can smell, one thing I can taste, one thing I can touch, and what's the one I forgot? One thing I can hear. And I go through that until I'm able to breathe normally again. And actually, there's one more that I do with clients, which is numbers and colors. So pick a random number and a random color and look around your space. Mm -hmm. So. I'm looking for five things that are pink. That's easy for me because I like pink. There's some Hello Kitty headphones. There's some beads in my craft kit. There's the American Girl doll that Larissa got me. (laughs) There's some pictures. And in that way, you come back into the present moment. Mm -hmm. The embodiment exercise is actually a play off of the five senses. Because I discovered that a wrapped lifesaver can take care of all of your sensory needs. Mm -hmm. Because you can smell it, touch it, taste it, hear the crinkle. And it's got a nice tactile, you know, it's, I I do not have a promotional. No, we are are not sponsored by Mint Lifesavers. We just (laughs) like the pun. Just (laughs) like how it sounds. So those are ones that I do myself and that I recommend to clients to try. Larissa, do you have a, a go-to? I think you hit on my go-to's friend. Mm-hmm. Hats off to you. Mind meld. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so why did you adopt the personas of Captain Kirk and Spock? This was really so organic. Yeah. I can't pinpoint a moment when it happened no. because Larissa and I, you know, we're 
best friends. Mm-hmm. And we just like talk about stuff. And we give each other silly nicknames. And like, I am sure that at some point she said something really smart. <laughs> and I said, you're Spock. And that's how it happened. But I, I, I can't point to a moment. Yeah. No, I can't either. The same is true of like our, our other go-to for each other is uh, Moose and Squirrel from Supernatural. Justine is Dean. Mm-hmm. If you met her in real life, you'd be like, yes, Justine is Dean. And I'm like <laughs> Sam, younger brother Sam. I'm very tall and I'm, I'm very emotive. I cry a lot. <laughs> it, and so like, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know, Tonio, when this happened, but it's just, it feels like we've always done it. It feels like I've always been like your moose and Spock and you've always been my Kirk and Squirrel. <laughs> yeah. And we, we absolutely use these nicknames out in our day to day life. Yes. And it's not just it's not just when we podcast and write, you know. No, it's she'll say good morning, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> I I love the moose and squirrel thing. I mean I, I grew up watching Bullwinkle and Rocky. Yes. Yep, and of course that's the original reference, and then it got used in Supernatural. And they were so f- playful and wacky and adventurous. Yeah, they were good. Good role models in a way. Agreed. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> Just take out that like weird propaganda with Russia. It was a product of its <laughs> it was. time. It very much was. <laughs> well, as you also love to say, you use what works and 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 ignore the rest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. That reminds me when I was a kid, I thought they were all friends. Boris, Natasha, Rocky, and Bullwinkle. I was like, they're, oh, they were just, they were, they pals. were pals. And my little kid fanfic, they were just friends. They're hanging out on a mountainside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How nice. It was like, they must, they must <laughs> love the fresh air. <laughs> and there's kind of wonderful qualities to all of them, like snidely whiplash. There's something that's right. Devilishly fun about his character. Mm-hmm. Wow, I could not have pulled that name out of my memory if I had tried. No, but it resonates now. That's amazing. Well, the reason why it worked for me is I didn't try. It just happened spontaneously. Mm, That's right. Mm -hmm. That's the power of play. Exactly. And I just love how we can call upon these fandom characters. Yeah. And here's a pair that occurred to me while reading your book. Arya Stark and Amos from The Expanse. Mm-hmm. Yes. They have an evolutionary trajectory that are going in opposite directions. Like Arya, yeah. this innocent, powerless young girl, and she becomes the baddest ass of badasses. And Amos is this badass guy, and yet he gets softer and softer. He does. Mm. And it's a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. They did, a, they did a really nice callback in this most recent season of The Expanse, the TV series. And I, I appreciate both the book and the TV series for like different reasons. But at any rate, they had this nice callback where Holden, who's the captain, like referenced this time in season one where he put a gun to Amos's head. And Amos was like, do what you got to do. I'm going to do what I have to do. And you're going to do what you have to do. And like, I think Holden mentions that to Amos. And Amos is like, really? We did that? And it really it did such a nice job, Tonio, of like of exemplifying what you're saying, that there's just been this softening and Amos has really learned how to care about and both be cared for by the people around him. Right, because throughout the show, he's this like borderline sociopath and yet 
he becomes a tender guy to some degree. I mean, he's still a badass. He's still, you know, if somebody puts a gun to his head, it's, he'll still say, do what you got to do. Right. Mm -hmm. But when he's encountering other human beings now, he's like, his heart has been softened. It's been tenderized. He, he can now relate to other human beings as flesh and blood feeling human beings, which, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. In the evolution of that story. Mm -hmm. And how they've all really grown to love and respect each other and honor each other in because they're all so incredibly different. Agreed. And it's so sad that they're not going to continue the story. I know. I discovered The Expanse a bit late, so I got to binge watch most of it. But um, nice. I love that story. I've always loved science fiction. I mean, science fiction is just it just plays into that open notion of possibility <laughs> well it's been so much fun to talk with you guys you too thank you so much for having us <laughs> oh it's, it's such a pleasure thank you mm -hmm. yeah and thank you for reading the book yeah and <laughs> and quoting it back to us that was the first time that's happened for us so that was very exciting it was, it was really lovely mm-hmm Co-creating the space with the three of you was just delightful for the three mm -hmm. of us. Yes. <laughs> and today is, you know, being May 4th is also pub day for your book. It is. It is. We're officially on, on stands. We are. Congratulations. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for celebrating it's... with us today. Oh, yeah. It, it was, yeah, so much fun. What a great idea. Thank you. Thank you. When I saw the title of the book, I knew I wanted to interview you long before I even knew what this, what it was. Because, you know, I, I love Star Trek. Yeah, so do we, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but to tell folks at home, in case they don't know, yes. there are many, 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 many fandoms in the book. Yes. So you will find something that resonates with you. We've got, we mean, got video got... games, anime, mm -hmm. manga, comics, cartoons, the TV golden shows, girls. the Golden Girls, <laughs> Wishbone. What's the story, Wishbone? So if you're a fan of Wishbone, don't worry. He's there for you. <laughs> the Brontes, inexplicably. So like, really, like, you're going to find your home here. So. <laughs> yeah, one thing we didn't get into at all was video games, because there are some therapeutic possibilities with video games that I think escapes the attention of most people. Yeah. Yeah. It's another opportunity for meaning making mm -hmm. and play. Yeah. And it's a shame we don't have yeah. time to get into it now, but that's what the book's there for listeners. So please check it out. It's available wherever <laughs> books are sold at a variety of online retailers, including lots of indie bookstores. And the book is Starship Therapies, Using Therapeutic Fan Fiction to Rewrite Your Life by my guests, Justine Mastin and Larissa Garski. Metaphors be with you. Oh, <laughs> too, friend. <laughs> All right. Bye. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>